Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Justin, and I'm the worship and missions pastor here. Um, Eric is out in Philadelphia this week, so I get the honor and the, the, the joy of being able to jump in the John series uh, this morning. If you'll remember uh, from the first couple of weeks, it's been a few weeks now, but um, Eric's made it about halfway through chapter one of John, and in that section, it makes some really big claims about Jesus. Things like, Jesus is eternal. He was in the beginning with God. He's all-powerful. He's the creator, the giver of life. He's our guide. He's got the whole universe, the whole cosmos securely under his control. And he's on a mission to illuminate the darkest parts of the world with his light and life. And so this morning, we're kind of in this transition from those statements about God or about Jesus into the first part of his ministry where some of those statements begin to be legitimized. We're going to be talking about how it is that God illuminates the darkness with his light. We're going to be talking about the strategy that he uses. Well, my son Bram, uh, he loves video games. He's actually in here today. He always puts his head down. He's like, Dad, you can't tell stories about me without my permission. (laughs) But Bram loves video games. It's not actually about him. And I think maybe the only thing he likes more is watching me play video games because I'm terrible at them. And uh, I didn't play them much growing up, and we didn't really have, like, the cool ones. I really wanted a Nintendo 64 with, with James Bond. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or I wanted that. We didn't have that. We had a, a computer game that I liked, though, that I'm sure somebody gave to us, and it was called Red Alert. Anybody heard of that? Uh, Red Alert is, oh, man, we got some passionate Red Alerters. Um, <laughs> the only thing, or, you know, so... In this game, you basically have to collect materials and supplies, and you buy up troops and weapons and all this kind of stuff. My favorite weapon was called a Tesla coil. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So a Tesla coil is this tower that shocked and obliterated anybody that came in its, in its radius. It's like real wholesome stuff. But when we think about, we think about kingdom-building strategies, we think about this type of stuff, right? It's like weapons and troops and conquering lands and armies and all that kind of stuff. But we're talking about Jesus' kingdom. And his kingdom is unlike the kingdoms of the earth. And he has a different strategy. And when we talk about kingdoms, we're talking about like range of domain. That's kind of what you think of with kingdoms. And God's range of domain is all things. There is no boundary to his reign. But his mission is a little bit different than the kingdoms of this earth. His mission is to seek and save the lost. To reconcile all things to himself. And here's his strategy. Get ready. His strategy is to mobilize us. You and me. Does anybody else go, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh, yeah. It's a huge task. It's awesome and it's terrifying at the same time. But like, Jesus, like I said, Jesus' kingdom is different. He's always been about using ordinary, everyday people who are empowered by his spirit That's his strategy. We are God's kingdom-building strategy. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into this. Jesus, this morning, I just ask that you would give us faith, that you'd give us obedience, that you would give us bigger eyes, bigger vision to see the world how you see it. Restore identity this morning. Lord, make us become less so that you can become greater, we pray. In Jesus' name, 
If you've got a Bible, um, go ahead and open up to John 1. And if you don't have the old-fashioned paper one, there's a great app called the YouVersion app that you can download. Chapter 1, we're going to start uh, verse 19 and following. Now, this was John's testimony. This is John the Baptist. Uh, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Jump down to verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Jump down to 34. He says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So this guy, John the Baptist, he shows up and he starts proclaiming that the long-awaited Messiah is about to come. He begins to pave the way for Jesus' ministry. And John was a little bit of an outsider. He uh, lived in the wilderness. He ate uh, wild locusts and honey, like a Bear girls kind of guy. And he wore like a camel fur outfit with a leather belt. He's kind of going for the chic Neanderthal thing. And, um, but as much of an outsider as he was, he gained a really significant following. So much so that the Jewish leaders and the priests, they, they actually sent an official delegation to question him about who he was. They were curious. They were confused by John. Was he the Messiah? Was he a great prophet? That refers to Malachi. There's a prophecy about one who's to come before Jesus. They weren't sure, but they knew something was different about John. John, however, was really clear about who he was, right? He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly who he was not. He knew exactly what his role was, too. He was there to reveal Christ. The first characteristic of people who effectively build Christ's kingdom is that they live to build Christ's kingdom, not their own. Jesus' followers live to build Christ's kingdom and not their own. John always pointed back toward Jesus. People were flocking to him, and he always pointed them back to Jesus. He had the perfect opportunity. It was a perfect opportunity to build an empire, to build a name for himself. But what did he do? He said, no, it's not me. It's Jesus. Look at him. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. Look at verse seven, or 37. He says, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So John, he, he didn't just announce who the Messiah was. It was more than talk. He actually sent his own following. People were following him. He said, look, look. And then they left and followed Jesus. He denied, intentionally denied growing a kingdom for himself in order to build Christ's kingdom. How polar opposite is that than the world we live in? We live in a world that's all about my kingdom, me, my. 
And I'm sure you've heard this before, but this is like the perfect illustration of this. So there are somewhere around 93 million selfies taken every day. Every day. 93 million selfies. So I just did a little quick Google, um, which I would encourage you not to do. But um, I found some of the top selfies, all right? So this first one, does anybody know who this is? Anybody know who that is on the left? I heard of Beyonce. You must be one of the 3.2 million people that liked it. 3.2 million people liked that picture. Like, cool filter, Beyonce. Um, Friends don't let friends Snapchat, by the way. Anyways, (laughs) here's a good one. All right, here's a good one. Yeah, that's the Pope. So even the Pope is getting in on it, and he looks really thrilled about it. Um, All right, check this one out. This is unbelievable. So this dude... My, my man is about to get gored in the backside by this bull. And he's like, I think I'm going to take a selfie of this, right? Natural, like, self-preservation instincts would say, put the phone down and run, right? I, there's got to be some liquid courage there. But anyways. All right, and the last one. You know who I would not want to be? That guy. I would not want to be that guy. Yeah. So this is, his, this is his caption. He says, uh, she said to make sure I get some pictures of the hospital room. <laughs> like, Jana, I would have died if I did that. Like, I would have, the wrath would have come down. Anyways, it's kind of awesome though. But seriously, 93 million selfies. 93 million selfies every day. Isn't that just such a picture of our culture? And it could be building our own businesses or gaining notoriety in our communities or having the perfect little families with successful kids or building up that retirement fund or gaining social media followers. Do you know you can buy them? It's a huge industry. And it's not just secular. It's a, it's a big reason some churches and denominations form because they think that they know the right way to do it. We want to rule our little kingdoms. It's the global culture that we're immersed in. And it's a far cry from John's words just two chapters later in John 3 where he says about Jesus, he must become what? Greater, and I must become less. And in the context of chapter 3, John's actually losing most of his followers. Still, he must become greater. So whose kingdom are you spending your one and only life building? Is it yours or is it God's? Is it temporal or is it eternal? Well, Jan and I, we recently entered into a glorious new season of life. We've got three kids and our youngest, Liza, here's a picture of Liza, um, I don't know if you can see it. It's kind of dark. That describes her personality, though. Um, She went into kindergarten. So we've got three in public school, and the Eagle Preschool staff was amazing. They took our kids from dysfunctional kids to being, like, uh, kind of functional in public school. So, um, but our youngest, Liza, we were a little concerned about her because she's a very independent and strong little girl, which I love that. She, she really marches to the beat of her own drum, but we were kind of concerned about her going into public school. Either she's going to be like a great leader, or she's going to become really good friends with the principal. But she's the one, so this is Liza in a nutshell. She's the one who, she taught herself how to ride a bike. So I'm working with Lucy, her older sister, and finally I get Lucy sent off, and then 
Liza goes right by. I'm like, great. You know, and actually, to illustrate it further, last night, she was watching Lucy tie her shoes and figured out how to do it herself. I didn't sit down with her one time. It's ridiculous. But she's also the one who picked the time, place, and person to learn how to swim. So we go on vacation with uh, uh, Jana's uh, brother and, and his family, and she only would let her Aunt Megan teach her how to swim because she's a lifeguard and she's the only person she trusted. At the start of vacation, she could not swim. At the end of vacation, she could. Or here's a good one. Uh, this summer, we're at the swimming pool, and uh, there were two boys, like 10, 12 years old, something like that, who were like 10 or 12-year-old boys do, splashing water on a butterfly, trying to, like, drown it. I would have done it. And um, she walks over to these two older boys, and she's like, hey, stop messing with the butterfly. And um, they stopped. And then she picks it up, and, like, the thing flies away, and so it's Liza. Well, here's one of my favorite ones, though, that illustrates the point. Um, She's at recess, kindergartner Liza. She's at recess, and she's got a friend, and, and her friend is being picked on by two boys. These two boys are hitting her friend. And so she goes over and tells the boys to stop. And the boys turn to Liza, and they start hitting Liza, which was the beginning of the end of their reign of terror. And she, <laughs> she then realizes, though, like, I, I'm a little out of my league here. I can't stop this situation. And so she goes and recruits somebody, her, her cousin Everett. He goes to the same school. And Everett's just, like, kicking it with his boys on the swings, and, and Liza goes over and, and tells Everett what's up and recruits some help. And so she describes it like this, like Everett comes over and literally just like ran circles around the boys, and then they stopped. (laughs) It's an unusual tactic, but it worked. The point is, though, Liza saw this task that was bigger than herself, right? It was outside of her ability to accomplish on on her own. She needed others to accomplish it. So she displayed a really important characteristic of people that effectively join Jesus in building his kingdom. And that's that Jesus' followers must bring others with them. Check this out, starting in verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, We found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked? Come and see, said Philip. So Jesus' followers must bring others with them. Did you catch that throughout that? So John's got a following, and he's sending him to Jesus. Andrew ropes in his brother Peter. Jesus himself is going out and bringing people in, like Philip. And then Philip goes and pulls in Nathaniel. In each of these cases, the first reaction to an encounter with Jesus is to bring others in. It's like the first step in their discipleship, which is a churchy term for becoming like Jesus and, following, and helping others follow Jesus. But as soon as they were exposed to Jesus, their first move was to bring others in. Edward Gibbon, he's a historian who specialized in first century Roman Empire. He wrote this about the early followers of Jesus. 
It became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relatives the inestimable blessings he had received. It became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relatives the inestimable blessings he had received. I believe this is something that we're supposed to model as followers of Jesus in our everyday lives. To diffuse among those around us Jesus. We're supposed to diffuse Jesus. So I just ask you to consider who are the people in your life that you know that God has placed you in proximity to to invite into this journey of following Jesus. The last characteristic I want to harvest out of this passage is that Jesus followers are effective because of their identity, not their qualifications. If you look at verse 42, it says, and I'm actually going to start at verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him we found the Messiah. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas or Peter. So this statement that Jesus made, it's actually really loaded. Um, and it helps to kind of understand some first century Jewish culture and, and context. So education for Jewish kids at this time uh, started at age six and finished by 10 for the lion's share of these kids. And, and by the time they were 10, these kids had the entire Torah memorized, which is the first five books of our Old Testament. So by the age of 10, they know the, Old Te- or the first five books of the Old Testament, and then they would go learn the family trade. That was basically the extent of formal education. There were two more levels of education for the absolute best and brightest. Well, the third level was like the highest honor. It's kind of, I would equate it to like getting drafted in the NBA or, or the NFL or something like that. And it was the, the highest honor. And in this highest level of education, the students would have to, go out and find a rabbi or a teacher and kind of go try to, to get one of them to let them follow them and become a disciple. So they'd go out and pursue them. If they found a rabbi that would say, yeah, like, you can come follow me, the rabbi would then interrogate them, basically. They just would grill them and, and ask tons of questions to figure out if they're actually qualified. And like I said, becoming a disciple was like, it was the highest honor. But Andrew and Peter, and Philip, and Nathaniel were just straight-up ordinary, carrying on the family fishing business. They most likely only completed the first level of education, but then a rabbi, Jesus. He pursues them and calls them by name. He doesn't ask questions. He just invites them in. And remember, it's the student's responsibility to pursue the rabbi, right? But in this case, Jesus is pursuing them. Jesus pursues us. Isn't that beautiful? So with that context, look at verse 42. Again, Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. Today you are Peter. Peter was just fishing, which doesn't sound all bad. But Peter was just fishing. And I imagine he'd given up on the dream of ever being a disciple or even a rabbi one day. Peter had been overlooked and undrafted and picked, he was picked last in gym class and he wasn't invited to the party that all his friends were at. But he encountered Jesus 
and everything changed. Jesus saw him, and he looked at him, and he called him by name. Like Ryan was saying, and there's so much power when somebody calls you by name. And he says, Peter, you're mine. You're qualified. You made the cut. You're in. I pick you. And then get this. He goes and renames Peter. He renames him. So the one who renames has authority. And with his authority, he renames him. And by renaming him, he restores his identity, and he redefines his destiny. And then Peter would lead, he would, he would become one of the key leaders and influencers of the early church. Well, back when I was in college, my very favorite classes, when you would go to sign up for them, um, were the ones that said, no prereqs required. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Maybe you don't know because you probably have a real degree. I've got a general studies degree, which that means I either know a little bit about a lot of things or I don't know much about anything, but... No matter the case, I'm going to go with the former, or is it the latter? I don't know. Anyways, I like these no prereqs classes because there were classes that didn't require previous classes to get in. So for calculus, the prereq is, not many people took it, like myself, but anyways, pre-calc, yeah. Or ceramics 2 required ceramics 1, in my case, you know. Uh, But for years, even though I knew the Lord was leading me to ministry, I spent a lot of time worrying about being qualified enough to be in ministry. And if I'm honest, I still do sometimes. See, I've never been to Bible school. I've never been to seminary. I've never been a missionary. I've never been trained formally in music. I've never taken courses on how to preach or been trained in counseling. My qualifications are way out of line with my line of work and the calling on my life. And long before I started college or ministry, I felt like my sin patterns had disqualified me from participating in what God is doing. But Jesus' kingdom is a no prereqs required kingdom. And maybe this morning, that's, that's the only thing you need to hear. You're qualified. You're in. This is a no prereqs required kingdom. You're a daughter and you are a son of the Father in heaven who qualified you long ago to join him in what he's doing. He sees you and he says, you're in. No prereqs required. Your sins don't disqualify you. Your education and your bank account, they don't disqualify you. Your age, it doesn't disqualify you. Your family brokenness doesn't disqualify you. Your lack of theology doesn't disqualify you. You are qualified because you are the daughter of a loving father. You are qualified because you are the son of a good God. Does that breathe life into anybody this morning? It's life-giving. I think maybe there's another group this morning that that you haven't put your trust in Jesus. You haven't said, yeah, I'm I'm all in. I'm going to follow Jesus. And today I think Jesus would say to you, I see you. I see where you're at. I see what doubts and fears you carry. I've seen you since before the foundations of the earth were made. And I have plans for your life that you could never imagine to be true. I think Jesus would say to you, your mistakes haven't disqualified you. Your baggage isn't too heavy for me. Your pain is well within my healing power. Your thoughts aren't too dark and your hatred isn't too deep. I died so that you could find life. You are a son. You are a daughter. You're qualified. You're in. The prereqs have been fulfilled. No prereqs required. 
Worship team, you guys can come on back up. This morning, we're going to move into a time of communion. And uh, I think there's no place, no practice that proclaims that the prereqs have been fulfilled like communion does. The prereqs have been met. The table says that his broken body and his shed blood for you and me have met the qualifications needed. But before we do that, I just want to give you all a little bit of space just to be still. I think it's good to like hear a word and then to sit with it and ask the Lord to speak to you. And as you do that, I want you, I want you to consider some questions. The first question, whose kingdom have you been spending your days building? Is it your kingdom? Is it God's kingdom? Is it temporal? Is it eternal? The second question I want to ask is, who has God uniquely placed in your life that he's asking you to bring along? Is there a name or a face that comes to mind? And then the last question, what qualifications do you need to stop waiting for? Do you feel unqualified or overwhelmed? Do you feel like you've missed an opportunity and had to stay on the sidelines? Jesus says, you're in. No prereqs required, just get in the game. So we're going to take some time and be still before the Lord, and then we're going to enter into the time of communion. And, and you're welcome to come down and pray. And um, Communion is just, it's a practice of remembering what Christ has done for us, and it's also a practice of joining him in his suffering. And so I want to position, position communion this morning as a time to surrender, and it's also a time of commitment where... When we take the bread and juice, we're putting a stake in the ground where we've surrendered some things to Jesus. And at Eagle, it's an open table to anybody who uh, professes Jesus as Lord. And maybe this morning you haven't made, that, uh, made Jesus the Lord of your life. And, and today I would just ask, maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day. And I'd, be, I'd just be so honored to talk to you about that. So which of these questions does the Lord want to talk to you about? And one, one thing that I want to challenge you with, in, in our, the way that we do communion here, we kind of do it in community. So we go as families or we go as a life group or friends or whatever. I would challenge you as you take some time and process and the Lord um, pulls out something in one of these questions, I would challenge you to pray about it with that group that you're with, to, to share it and then spend some time praying about it. We've got plenty of time. Um, Eric's in Philadelphia, so we can go as long as we want. But, um, <laughs> but spend some time praying together um, and then... Yeah, encourage each other, pray together, and we'll continue worshiping that way. So let's just take a few minutes, ask the Lord, is there one of these questions in particular that he wants to talk to you about, and then what would he say? And then I will pray and dismiss you all to communion. So Lord, would you speak to us now?
Jesus, thank you that your kingdom is a no prereqs required kingdom. Thank you for your body and your blood that you shed for us. Thank you that you've invited us into this grand narrative that you've been writing for all of history, that you invite us to play a part in what you're doing. Remind us this morning of our identity, of who we are in you. Jesus, we commit together to join you in your suffering, to walk with you, to lay down our lives for you. We want your kingdom to advance. Become greater in our hearts individually. Make us less individually and collectively as a community. Become greater and we'll become less. Jesus, we worship you this morning. And bless your name.